Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories. Today we have Nicklin with us. Nicklin was born and raised in Oak Park, Illinois, and educated in Denmark and New York. Nicklin's personal mission is to foster a world of unconditional love, acceptance, and empathy by sharing his story, building connections with like-minded others, and living a life of service. So welcome, Nicklin. Thank We're you. so excited to have you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. So first question, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? Currently or historically? Both. Currently, <laughs> as a male-identified person, a specifically a white male-identified person, I believe that that most strongly influences the way that I'm both perceived and able to move in the world. Having been assigned female at birth, though, I have a whole other set of experiences of what it's like to live in the world and the expectations of others and their reactions to whether or not I conform or don't conform to those expectations. Um, so it's kind of an interesting amalgamation of how I perceive myself internally and also I'm aware of the perceptions of others. What about historically? So historically, as my sexuality and my gender identity have evolved, that's where things get a lot more complex. I mean, for instance, people ask me often how I identify as a sexual identity, and the labels get really murky. <laughs> because at one point, when I was assigned female and lived in the world as a woman, any relationship that I had with another female-identified person would be perceived and was labeled, and I identified as a lesbian. And then I began transition, became more aware of the complexity of my own gender identity. And that began to influence how my sexual identity was perceived. Mm -hmm. Like I have always internally been exactly the same person, but the labels started to get mm -hmm. really confusing. Mm -hmm. Especially then if I had a relationship that was with a non-binary identified person, for mm -hmm. instance who may have been in some part of their transition process, you know, from mm -hmm. one I, uh, label to another label. Mm -hmm. Or if I, for instance, like the classify the relationships that I had when I was, say, in high school, I would have been heterosexual because I was legally female, at that time female identified, dating cisgendered men. Now that I am legally male, what would you call those? Mm -hmm. Are those gay? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. it gets really, really murky. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, which is usually why I just uh, default to the term queer, because mm -hmm. it's kind of an umbrella term. And it denotes that that my experience and my identity is somewhat out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's why I appreciate once the word queer kind of got taken back by the community, because I feel like it allows for that nuance that is so hard to put these very restrictive labels onto. Yeah. And especially, like you said, like in regard to life experience, 
you know, like these labels and people have fluidity throughout their lifetime of different identities. And I personally love the word queer. And we both have talked about like identifying with that word. Yeah. It's like my favorite all encompassing like mm-hmm. term. It's just like the saying queer is just like, even though it used to be a bad term mm-hmm. and it used to be like, you're, you're this person, you're like derogatory term. Oh, yeah. I remember as a kid that there was a game that they used to actually play called Smear the Queer. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basic premise was everybody had a ball, uh-huh. usually a football, sometimes some other round spherical thing. Mm-hmm. And then you would throw it into the air and somebody would catch it. And then literally everybody else would try to get the ball from that person by taking them down to the ground. Oh, wow. Like tackling and they labeled that person as like queer. the queer person. Yeah. So it yeah. was a performative was yeah. demonstration of how anybody that was labeled queer was to be attacked. Mm. Yeah, that's scary. That's wild. So, I mean, and these are children yeah. right. playing a game. Yeah. I don't even like I'm I'm not surprised, but like hearing about the history yeah. of the word queer it's just like really frustrating that that's what had to happen for this term to be seen as now like a positive term that people are using. But with it being a positive term, I'm glad that you, 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 me, like we're all using it as like terms that are all encompassing of different identities, not only with like gender, but with like sexuality as well. And the fact that it's now a positive term and people are understanding that it's no longer a derogatory thing. I think that's not only going to like help bridge that gap that people seem to like focus on a lot, but also like have people who like maybe identify as like heterosexual or cis, like understand that there's still room in that term for everybody. And that Mm -hmm. we should just understand that this is not, a negative thing anymore mm-hmm. so it's just like really refreshing whenever i hear people say yeah i'm queer like, yeah cool i'm not gonna stress about how you like <laughs> what other what other denominations that is it's like, cool you get it that's awesome yeah. yeah yeah cool yeah and i know you were saying you grew up in the area um so i'm curious to kind of hear a little bit more about like what that was like in the area you grew up in like just outside the city Right. So Oak Park has nominally been a progressive liberal community, certainly for the entirety of my lifetime, around racial politics and economics specifically. um, There was a lot of work in that regard, starting in the 60s. At the same time, there are probably more churches in Oak Park or religious institutions because there are other things beyond Christian churches that also exist within Oak Park. So there is, in addition to this progressive movement, a deeply conservative, I would almost label it orthodoxy, cultural orthodoxy. And there's a lot of conflict that happens when communities that are that divergent try to come to a compromise somewhere in the middle to, you know determine educational policy, um, social policy, economic policies, those kinds of things. As a kid, 
most of us aren't really aware of what the adults are all talking about or why things are the way they are. We just know that I'll, I go to this school because I live on this block, not on that block. And my friend who lives on this block goes to this other school mm-hmm. because they live on that block. And, you know, the whole like, well, we're trying to like make sure that there's diversity and pro- proportion and, you know, economic and racial proportions. Like that's totally above most kids' heads. Unless you happen to have particularly progressive parents who are really invested in those kind of dialogues, mm-hmm. in which case, maybe, like in my house, <laughs> talk about those kinds yeah. of things. That I think, though, like many things, I was outside the norm. My parents, for many different reasons, you know, um, respected my intellectual ability to understand complex subjects, and I was very curious and so I would ask a lot of questions. Why is this way? Where does this go? Why? How does this function? What reason is it that we do that thing this way? And at the same time, they were both raised in very traditional conservative cultures. My mother came from a small town, Ohio. My dad came from an equally small town originally in Indiana, and then his family moved to Michigan. They were both raised in really conservative Christian traditions, and for their own personal reasons, you know, moved beyond and evolved past those that that just didn't work for them. And so they found their own paths and own communities to, you know, try to make sense of the world. And they made sure that that was part of how they raised their children. And so... My mom was really invested in making sure that we had as broad and comprehensive uh, an education as we had available to us, given our economic means. Um, And so one of the things that she understood was that, for better or for worse, religion affected everything. You know, religious traditions and religious faiths are part of history, they're part of art and culture, they're part of music, they're part of community building, um, and that having a good, solid understanding of how that happens and why and where, you know, those things come from, so that I had the best, my sisters and I had the best opportunity to move into the world. She saw that the Unitarian Universalists were people who really valued education. And so that was the compromise. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my father, who left his faith and was like, faith is not for me. Faith traditions, especially orthodox ones, are not not something that he finds um, makes sense for him. So that was the compromise. And so I was raised in this really intellectual, cosmopolitan, where curiosity and exploration were really valued and celebrated. And my mother in particular was really invested in our education. And uh, so they also um, connected with international communities. And so we would have students from outside the U.S. come and stay with us many times from many different countries around the world. Um, so we learned languages and traditions and different, you know, yearly celebrations and things like that in our house because... Even if we couldn't travel the world, that was a way that we could bring the world to us. And again, that was really important for my parents. They wanted us to be 
not just local citizens or U.S. citizens, but really understand that like we are part of a global community and that, that we have more in common with people than we have different. And then I hit junior high and things got really complicated <laughs> because I discovered that my expression of sexuality was different from the norm. And I hit face first into that wall of underground conservatism that exists in Oak Park, that very traditionalist, very Christian core. And that was traumatic because all of a sudden I was ostracized and made to feel really unwelcome or sometimes actively like traumatized by people like, you know, bumping into me in the halls, saying awful things to me at school, writing horrible notes and leaving them in my locker. You know, a lot of the ways that kids are really aggressive to people who are scapegoats for their own whatever going on you know i was the point person that they could direct all of that anxiety that feeling of otherness because i was queer and uh and at that time oak park didn't really have good ways of dealing with that there wasn't a gay straight alliance there wasn't a organization locally that supported lgbt and the was, tea wasn't even on the menu. <laughs> it was LGB. There wasn't any kind of support organizations. And so I just, you know, my parents and I just kind of tried to do the best they could to get me through it to a place where, like, I could get out into the world or make contact with larger organizations that I might then find support and community and things like that, skills on how to live in a world that isn't always very friendly or safe or supportive because there just wasn't resources available to us at that point. So I'm curious a little bit, you mentioned like feeling the negative impact of kind of the religion you were around at that point. Um, When did you connect with the Unitarian Church and when did you become a part of that? So I was raised in the Unitarian Church. So when I was a little kid... Yeah. My parents brought us into that community and we were part of that community until I was probably about, I want to say 11, 12, 12 or 13, somewhere around there. Yeah. After that, my parents realized that I had my own choices and I began exploring um, spirituality on my own outside of a a congregational community. Mm -hmm. And so I attended a Catholic youth group with my friends from the school because I wanted to be with my friends (laughs) and like the Catholic thing was just kind of, Oh, well that's where they go for youth group. Like Mm -hmm. it happens to be associated with the Catholic church. The Catholic church that they belong to is a very open-minded, especially within their youth program, incredibly open-minded youth oriented, youth affirming ministry. And so it was, it was a good safe space for me to really explore spirituality. At the same time, you know, I was, studying things like Wicca and Buddhism and different pagan traditions because I loved mythology. I was a super mythology nerd when I was a little (laughs) kid. Like I probably about 
seven, eight, nine years old, had this absolute obsession with Greek and Roman gods. Oh, and Egyptian gods. And I memorized the entire, like, family tree of the Greek and Roman pantheon. And the at that young age, too. At, yeah, wow. at, and the overlaps between what, how the Romans borrowed Greek mm-hmm. gods, and how the mythologies from one culture differentiated or overlapped. And I love that. Um, I also began exploring the Norse pantheons and their mythologies, and then the Egyptians and then their mythologies, because I just thought it was fascinating. Like there was all these hero stories and creation myths and adventures and Mm -hmm. trickster gods and beautiful maidens that were turned into things (laughs) you know like it was just it was like a great big adventure story yeah it was fascinating and there was so so much of it and so uh, i think i held on to that in terms of like when i began trying to figure out like how does this all work for me personally Mm -hmm. to make sense of the world Mm -hmm. and how do I connect to something that's greater bigger than myself at the same time you know at that point in my life I also very clearly got the message specifically from those in the Christian denominations that their god did not welcome me I remember viscerally hearing the words you are an abomination in the eyes of god and like it's burnt into the inside of my head the trauma of experiencing that incredible disconnection Mm -hmm. from i remember being a little kid and going to sunday school not within necessarily the unitarian congregation like when i would visit my father's family or other people's churches and remember like hearing the songs jesus loves the little children Mm -hmm. or God's got the whole world in his hands. (laughs) And like that feeling of being loved and cared for and watched over and like safe and part of, and like a, like part of a big family. There was this really huge emphasis on fathers and sons and family. And you are the children, children of God. Mm -hmm. Right. And then all of a sudden you are not, I am not welcome in the family. There is something horribly bad and wrong with me, and I will never be welcome in this family. And that feeling of loneliness and grief over that loss, and the fear of like, okay, now I'm in the world and I have nothing. I have just me. Like, it's Terror, like the existential terror yeah. of that feeling is so enormous. Like it's hard to communicate, mm-hmm. especially as a kid. Right. You know, I was 11, 12, 13 years old, right. trying to make sense of these enormous things and what that meant from the rest of my life with a kid brain, you know, mm-hmm. as a smart kid and a curious kid. And I, I, still couldn't couldn't make sense of that you know so you know like most kids do the best you can to try to move forward with what you have so i was atheist for a long time i was like well okay clearly i don't have a god mm-hmm. or there isn't a god for mm-hmm. me right and that changed over time i was able to 
build and create a relationship with something that wasn't based on these old concepts of God, that was personal to me, and that connected me back to that feeling of being welcome and part of and safe and loved and cared for. Yeah. Without all the rest of <laughs> the baggage um, that was attached to that old concept of what God was supposed to be. Yeah. It took a long time and a lot of work and a lot of exploring and a lot of asking for help mm. from people in many, many different faith traditions to understand how they have a relationship with God that's personal to them, that's yeah. outside necessarily like an institution or a dogmatic practice of life or faith. That's just what is this thing and how do you relate to it? What does it look like for you? And how do you feel about it? That's really the important thing for me. It was, how do you feel about it? Thank you for sharing all that. And it's about time to transition into sharing your story oh, yeah. as well. <laughs> so we would love to hear what you have for us today. Great. There was a big part of me that thought transitioning, becoming my true male self, would be the answer to all my problems. That bringing my body into alignment with my understanding of who I am would make my life easier and simpler and end my feelings of always being in conflict with everyone and everything. That was decidedly not the case. Every time I go to a new healthcare provider, I am forced to come out all over again and often have to do more educating about my body and my health issues than the other way around. And when I've needed to see a gynecologist, the insurance companies don't seem to know how to code those treatments for someone who is legally male, which means I always have to pay out of pocket. Coming out to my partner as trans precipitated the ending of my first long-term relationship because, as she put it, if I'd wanted to marry a man, I would have married the nice Jewish boy my parents picked out for me. I lost many of my connections to the queer community and my chosen family because my former lesbian feminist sisters felt I had sold out to the man by becoming one instead of just embracing and celebrating my masculinity while remaining female. That quiet acknowledgement of recognition and validation that I used to get when I'd see another butch lesbian on the street disappeared, replaced with suspicion and even outright hostility. Even finally being able to get legally joined as husband and wife to my now ex-wife, a thing I'd dreamed about as a kid, and honestly never thought could happen in my lifetime, meant that for her comfort and peace of mind, I had to edit my life story so that all the incongruent pieces fit the narrative that we were just your average, hetero, cisgendered suburban couple. Summers spent at Girl Scout camp became just scout camp. The fact that we met at an all-women's college was neatly repackaged as us having attended a tiny liberal arts school in upstate New York. As a recovering addict whose sobriety sounded on the core principle of honesty, these half-truths felt like a slow erosion of my integrity, a high price indeed for the normality I had always wanted. I discovered 
that there's a whole new level of discomfort in trying to date as a single trans man because I struggle so much trying to figure out when the right time to disclose my status is with each new potential partner. <laughs> Whether they are female or male, at some point the possibility of physical intimacy arises, and there is a significant level of awkwardness in the discussions that follow as we dance around the topic of my genitals. Transitioning was definitely not the panacea I had hoped for. What it has given me, though, are some unexpected gifts. When my father broached the topic of genital surgery, much to my surprise, it was my mother who most readily understood that even if it were possible for me to receive something like a full penile transplant, I still wouldn't choose to go that route, because the children fathered would still not be mine at a genetic level. It'd just be a super fancy and super expensive means of artificial insemination. And my gender has never been tied to that part of my anatomy. While living as a masculine female, and particularly during the early phases of my transition, I was forced to suppress the feminine aspects of myself as they somehow invalidated my maleness. I consciously altered the way I walked, the way that I spoke, and even how or if I expressed my emotions. If I let my guard down, I was told over and over again that they proved I wasn't really male. Now that I'm read by most people as a cisgendered male, I am free to express all of these parts of myself, which ironically often lead people to conclude that I'm a gay guy. The biggest gift has been in becoming aware of just how much of my mental, emotional, and physical energy I had to devote to monitoring my safety as a woman, particularly as a masculine woman. Being a butch dyke often made me the target for the fear and rage of men who felt threatened by my very existence. As if by claiming my own masculinity, I was somehow a threat to theirs. From the moment I stepped foot outside my front door, I was constantly assessing my surroundings, the proximity of other people, their words and attitude, as well as how they seemed likely to respond to anything that I might say or do. All so that I could keep myself safe. When I completed my transition, I was shocked at the profound level of silence in my mind once all these processes were finally shut off. This visceral reminder of just how deeply I have been affected by systematic misogyny and toxic masculinity is one of the reasons I am here and telling you my story. Because as a man, I have found that other men are more receptive to changing their perspective and behaviors when they see it through my experiences. And for all the women of the world and those who identify as neither or both or somewhere in between, I want to use whatever power I have to make sure that they too can experience the freedom of being and living in a world that is safe and nurturing. I have made it part of my life's work to be an example to trans youth and their families of someone who has learned to live as their authentic selves and is happy and healthy, not just surviving. 
though that is a miracle in itself in a world that actively tries to erase us, but truly thriving. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. I have multiple questions rolling around my head. I don't know Go for it. Great. Yeah? yeah, I'm still absorbing. So one of the things that I really, um, that I've kind of heard in a couple of people's stories in relation to this that I really appreciate is that ability often of after transitioning, being able to embrace both masculine and feminine energy instead of feeling the need to have to suppress the feminine energy. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of your experience of that and what that was like. As a kid, I had very, very long hair. I had long blonde hair, like down past my butt. I would sit on it. It was so long. <laughs> it was so frustrating, actually, when I would be in school. Because it would always get caught in the little pegs in the back oh, of the seats. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a swimmer, and so my hair was always wet, like for hours. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and there's an experience of being a really pretty woman and a pretty girl in our society that is deeply dissociative, where you learn to both allow other people to objectify you and to objectify yourself because there's safety and power in that objectification. Like when the only thing that is valued is how pretty you look, you learn to leverage whatever power you have. And for me, that dovetailed with my own body dysmorphia around feeling comfortable in my actual body. I remember feeling many times when I would dress gender appropriately and I would go to school in a skirt or a dress or something like that and people would comment constantly you are so pretty why don't you wear that more often and I knew in that moment like at a gut level they're not looking at me they're not seeing me not Nicklin they're seeing a facade, a persona. Mm -hmm. They're looking at my body. And that felt wrong. And so what I've learned through this process is to reown my body and to celebrate its beauty, that it's mine. And there's power and delight and joy in that. And that that actually is differentiated from both masculinity or femininity. It's, it's not attached to any one of those concepts. It's beauty, like art, like the sky, like walking in the forest. It's beautiful. And I, and I can experience that same beauty without associating it or putting it in a box. And that process yeah, um, has allowed me to reintegrate those aspects of myself that because they had been assigned to the female and feminine, I had had to distance myself from for safety, psychic safety. Yeah. Because it was actively harmful to me. And I don't think that that's unique. I think that's something that many, many people who are assigned female or express femininity experience. Mm -hmm because of the way that our culture is structured and the power differential between those things that are 
considered esteemable, which is part of that toxic masculinity. You know, masculinity is prized. Femininity is not. Thank you. So how's your family dynamic now? Especially like since you mentioned like growing up in Oak Park and how it was before versus how it is now. But with that being said, like, is your family, has your family changed with that change or yeah. is it like still? So coming out at that young an age mm-hmm. was a traumatic experience for all of us. My younger siblings, my parents for me, because we didn't have structures or guide or any kind of idea of how to go about that in a way that was affirming or validating or safe, mm-hmm. frankly. And my next youngest sibling and I had never been particularly close. And then my youngest sibling was eight years younger than I am. So she was like my baby. (laughs) 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 She was our collective baby, Uh you know? And I think because I was so angry and afraid and my parents struggled so much to try to figure out how to help me and didn't know how to help me i just withdrew you know i i ran away and that affected every relationship in my family that geographical and emotional distance and i needed some of that time to like figure out like how do i do this who am i and and what's true for me and And clearly you can't help me with that, so I'm going to go do it on my own. And there was anger and sadness associated with that, too, that I really struggled with trying to process. For better or for worse, my family didn't have a lot of emotional tools to talk about feeling. It wasn't that they were actively denied or anything like that, or like, you're not allowed to feel anger. You're not allowed to be sad. It's just, you know, like many families, there aren't structures that teach people how to, like, be present for other people's emotions or even to, like, oh, this is sadness. This is grief. This is anger. This is shame. This is fear. It lives here in this part of your body. This is what it feels like when this emotion comes up. Like, we like, yeah. I had to go far away to other people to to learn how to do that part of it. Once I did that, then I was able to come back to have better, deeper conversations about all of this. And I'm really incredibly grateful because I have now wonderfully connected, honest, intimate relationships with all the members of my family that I don't think I would have been able to have had I not gone through what I went through and did all the work that I did. I am particularly and especially grateful to have the relationship with my sisters that I do because, you know, growing up, we were the three girls. (laughs) And and in claiming my maleness, there was a break Mm -hmm. in that. You know, we were no longer a triad. And there's sadness. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there's a kind of specialness in, like, being part of it, a small tribe, you know, a line of women, a cluster community. And I put myself outside of that circle. And so 
I'm grateful that we have evolved and worked on our relationships so that that's not necessarily true now. You know, we are siblings in support and in loving relation with one another. And, uh, and I love and admire them both. I think they're phenomenal women. And that's true of actually most of the women in my family. I think they're amazing. <laughs> what was really surprising to me, actually, is when my parents told my very religious grandparents that I was gay, they did not respond in a negative way. They never stopped expressing their love and their welcome for me as as one of their kids. Like, up until the day that my grandfather died, even after my transition, like, there was never, ever a moment where I doubted that I was not welcome and loved by him. So. That's great. Yeah. Which has not been true for every single part of my family. But those really core primary relationships, yeah. Yeah, I feel like sometimes we kind of have the assumption that the older generations just aren't going to be accepting because they don't understand it. They didn't have any of that language in their generation, and it's so wonderful when they just are open and still loving. Yeah. One of the things that also I'm kind of thinking about that I think was really important that you noted in your story was kind of having to come out to medical providers over and over. Um, and that's something I, I think about a lot as like being an educator and thinking about, you know, new people in the medical field who are going through their training now and the people who are already practitioners and that big gap in knowledge that they often aren't trained on. So, I'm curious, kind of from your viewpoint, what would you hope to see change as part of kind of curriculum with medical providers, you know, whether it's nurses, doctors, all all of that, what would you like to see happen? So I actually had an opportunity to do uh, an on-site practicum, I don't know what the right word is, uh, for a Planned Parenthood clinic in uh, in Ithaca when I was living there. Um, I was asked to come Every person in the staff was mm -hmm. there, and they basically said, come tell us your story. Mm -hmm. Tell us what your experience of being a patient of ours has mm -hmm. been like, and what is your experience of being in the medical realm and dealing with this as part of your transition. Yeah. So there, I was privileged. I mean, it was really awesome to be able to, to just explain to them what the struggles are like, both the positive and negative experiences, you know, for instance, when I went to, when I began the process of seeking hormone replacement therapy, my general practitioner wasn't comfortable just prescribing it. And so he required that I go to an endocrinologist specialist, which was at that time part of the standard protocols. What he didn't tell me was that I needed to go to a specialist that was specializing in testosterone. And so I ended up going to a women's endocrinologist, submitting myself through the entirety of a pelvic exam, only to be then told, we're sorry, but we can't actually prescribe you testosterone at this practice. You need to go to this other specialist who happened to be a urologist mm -hmm. and they 
they can then actually give you the treatment that you need. That feeling of incredible violation. It's hard to <laughs> articulate. I remember driving home from that appointment just weeping because I felt so incredibly powerless. I am still often at the mercy of whoever allows me to get the treatment that I need until literally just this last year. I have never worked for an employer that had an insurance policy that did not explicitly exclude treatment for sexual reassignment. Wow. Explicit exclusion. We will not provide any kind of payments for anything having to do with sexual reason. So the huge economic barrier when those kind of gatekeeping policies are in place within the medical community. And that's, that's just at a, at a financial level. Like, and then there's these, you know, non, not aware, non congruent teams of medical practitioners who aren't really communicating to one another about like <laughs> what's necessary. Really incredibly grateful actually for Howard Brown and their medical practice. And the way that they, their programs support the transgender community and how they've done the very best that they can in order to create comprehensive health care and also lower the <laughs> hurdles that one has to actually clear in order to receive that kind of support. Because let me tell you, jumping through hoops is stressful for anybody in this kind of way where it's like, I need this in order to actually be comfortable in my body to live a functional, healthy, sane life. Mm -hmm. I feel kind of the same way about mental health in general. Like yeah. there's a lot of hoops, barriers that we place that don't allow people to get the support that they need. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think sometimes people who are practitioners in the medical community might not always see, like you said, sending someone for any type of physical exam and um, what that can trigger for people, you know, whether it's because they identify as trans or they have trauma that is tied to that, that recommending something without knowing whether that's the actual direction you should have sent them can cause suffering that wasn't necessary. And I yeah. think sometimes that's not always noticed. And it's also kind of surprising because, I mean, the basic core tenet of the Hippocratic Oath is mm -hmm. do no harm. Yeah, exactly. And this unconsciousness and this lack of awareness mm -hmm. of the harm that's caused is builds lack of trust. It breaks yeah, down trust. For sure. And so you have then trans people who won't seek really critical medical support, you know, there were some questions regarding my own health that involved possible issues with uterine health or ovarian health, mm -hmm. and I had to go in for um, an ultrasound. So pretty invasive. I've had to have those before. Invasive. They're pretty invasive, yeah. And although the technician that worked with me in performing that procedure was respectful to my face... There's a point at which when they're moving from external mm -hmm. to the internal, 
where you have to go and relieve your bladder. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And I remember walking from the examining room to the bathroom, and that technician walked over to a whole cluster of other technicians mm-hmm. that were working there and expressing to them, like, oh, my God, this is the craziest, weirdest, like, I'm so uncomfortable, this is freaky. Oh, like, my gosh. And then you had to go back in that room. And then room. I had to go back in that room and wow. submit to this very intimate procedure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so frustrating. I can't even imagine the discomfort because I've been in that. I've received many of those ultrasounds because I have medical issues with my ovaries. And it is very invasive. And like to even imagine, like you said, that break in between the two types of ultrasounds and having to go back in that room and then sit through that procedure. And how have that person touched your body in an incredibly intimate way? Yeah. Yeah. And a part of my body that is often feels or has felt or has been made to feel not part of my body. Right. Or like this should be different. And like you were saying, the lack of unawareness or even consciousness that that person even had around all of those pieces, around the feelings they were feeling, around them making that decision to even verbally express anything while a patient was still present and assuming that you weren't picking up on any of it or hearing any of it. It's just such a high lack of awareness that really is unacceptable and needs to be addressed, I feel like, in the medical community. Yeah. Yeah. But where and when right. and how. Yeah, <laughs> and those are, exactly. Those That's are... the work that, that needs to be done. Yeah. Because, yeah. as I said in my piece, like having to educate them puts a huge burden on me. Yeah. Especially when I'm trying, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to them because allegedly they're the ones that know better. Exactly. You're putting your trust in them. Like you said, that just builds up that medical mistrust. Yeah. On a different note, <laughs> in your bio mentioned that you were in Denmark. Yes. Can you elaborate more on that? Why sure. were you in Denmark? So I decided after I graduated from high school that I didn't want to go to college right away. Mm-hmm. And so I took a, a gap year mm-hmm. and I went through a program called the American Field Service mm-hmm. um, and spent a year abroad in Denmark. I originally applied for the Sweden program, but all the slots were full. (laughs) (laughs) And so Denmark was uh, the closest that I could get to Sweden. Mm -hmm. My great-grandmother is Swedish. Mm -hmm. uh, She was first-generation American, Mm -hmm. but her parents and older siblings were all Swedish nationals. And so that's been part of my cultural identity and heritage and one that I wanted to explore more of. You know, I was obviously more aware of my Scottish English, um, Welsh ancestry and culture. Scandinavians were something a little bit more, you know, distant, literally, um, and also figuratively. And so um, I've also loved Hans Christian Andersen's children's <laughs> stories, you know, and, uh, and it was an aspiration of mine to learn how to read him in his original old Danish, which I did accomplish. Nice. I was able to read all of his original stories, the way wow. that they were written by him, not translated. And they mm-hmm. are different. Mm-hmm. They're culturally different. Mm-hmm. They're tonally different. It was cool. 
like to see as a writer as a fellow writer what he had intended and how the translators changed some of that to make it more culturally palatable um for americans specifically how long did it take you to learn and read all of that i'd say because i was living immersively with a family and going to school not to study, but like to go to have a place to be, to hang out with other young people, mm-hmm. to learn and practice the language quickly. I'd say within the first four months, I was functionally able to, you know, make myself understood, navigate spaces, and mm-hmm. wow. have basic conversations. By probably six, six, seven months. Yeah, I'd say six or seven months. I was able to read most Danish. I had a fantastic... The Danes are really like language wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this this one company that produces these um, language transla- transla- translation dictionaries. Mm-hmm. So you have the English to Danish and then the Danish to English. And they're mm-hmm. all red-bound books. And they are incredibly comprehensive. And so uh, if I got stuck, mm-hmm. I would just grab my dictionary and read, oh, okay, this is, has all these nuances of meaning. Mm-hmm. This is how it's generally used in context. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what he meant. And the difference between old Danish and new modern Danish is not significant enough that even with a modern dictionary, I wasn't able to figure out in context what he meant mm-hmm. by using that specific word. Cool. That's really fast. It's yeah. impressive. I was a really good mimic. I'm also a singer okay. and raised in a music tradition. Yeah. And I think that facility with sound and rhythm mm-hmm. helps with language. Do you still feel fairly fluent? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just goes away, doesn't it? It's so hard to maintain. Yeah. No. You know, all um, of that was in your brain at one point. But yeah, yeah. I, I think... I think probably if I were to move there or spend like a good chunk of time there, yeah. I probably would be able to pick it up really quickly. Right. But I'm mean, in terms of like vocabulary, yeah, most of that's gone. Yeah. How long were you there for? Not quite an entire twelve months. Okay. Since you moved to Denmark and you came back, what did you end up doing when you came back? So I deferred a scholarship to mm-hmm. start college. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I had applied for and was accepted at the all-women's college in upstate right. New York. <laughs> and um, I contacted them and said, look, uh, if I don't come this fall, can I still – will my place still be held and will my scholarship still be available? Mm-hmm. And like, absolutely. That's great. So, nice. yeah. So I came back mm-hmm. and worked for the summer, what was left of the summer. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then started school in the fall. It Ooh. worked out really well. Very seamless. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, we're about at the end of time. Yeah. So we want to give you space to plug anything you'd like to plug, anything you're working on, sure. any upcoming projects that you'd like to let yeah, people so know about. So there's actually um, two things that are going on really soon. A fellow performer named Maureen Muldoon is doing a, one of her solo pieces next Wednesday at the Greenhouse Theater Center. The performance piece is called Transparent Love, 
it is about her own personal journey with her transitioning child and how she talks about the intergenerationality of how gender and sexuality across the genders you know affects her relationship with her child and her own parents um and she invited me to come uh to present a piece actually the one that i just presented here there and to uh uh, stay with her afterwards for a Q&A session. Okay. So that's happening on Wednesday, February 13th. And then uh, the next performance after that is March 7th. That is, I was invited to be part of a new series developed by a fantastic storyteller and educator by the name of Ada Cheng. And that new series, uh, Ada and I know one another because we performed together at a performance piece up in Evanston. And then she invited me to come be part of her series called Am I Man Enough? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was actually the first time I performed the first iteration of the piece that I just delivered tonight um, was at that performance. And uh, subsequently, I, she asked me to come and do this new series help her kick this off called Speaking Truths. The space in between is the theme for this show. Uh, And that is happening March 7th at the National Cambodian Heritage Museum and Killing Fields Memorial here in Chicago. And I'm really excited about both that series and to be a part of that show. Kind of fits in, you know, beyond queer stories (laughs) and and the spaces in between seem pretty um, synergistic. Yeah, that one's been on my radar, actually. I'm hoping to go to that one. So uh, I'm really excited about that, too, because most people don't know much about Cambodia Mm -hmm. or the the link to American history or how, you know, um, that population of people was directly affected by Mm -hmm. the American conflicts going on in that country and around it. So I'm excited to be able to be in that space and to learn more about that community and also to be part of this storytelling experience because I think that as Ada likes to point out we have more in common than we have different Mm -hmm. and it's really awesome to be able to connect to people across boundaries and to see how our common humanity really plays out and also to learn more about those things that are different for sure so yeah. wonderful well we're looking forward to catching you at upcoming shows yeah, in the city <laughs> yeah well, it was great meeting you thank you for sharing with us thank you so Absolutely. much for being it's a pleasure here. thanks so much for inviting me don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram at beyond queer stories also check out the creator of our podcast music b studwell she's an incredible queer artist from dc and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk Talk to you all next week. week.